but um, sort of came to this conclusion that it didn't matter how well I taught Romeo and Juliet if somebody hadn't had breakfast. It didn't matter how great of a relationship I had with my kids if, you know, and so at that point sort of felt like, how do I affect larger systems change that can stop some of this, this inequity stuff? I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. My guests for this episode are Kate Hennizian and Ramsey Ford. They're the founders of Design Impact, which is a nonprofit social design firm that's working on issues of complex social change in Cincinnati. There is a lot of cultural discussion right now around human-centered design, but it can be difficult to know exactly what that means in specific contexts. Kate does a better job of distilling that here than I've previously heard, and she specifically addresses how not using a human-centered approach limits the effectiveness of ideas and solutions in social change. If you're at all interested in creative solutions to social problems, or even just hearing how someone approaches the thorny issues of systemic inequity— then this is the discussion for you. I met Kate and Ramsey at the brand new Branch Restaurant, a gorgeous new restaurant and bar built into the historic Central Trust Bank building in Cincinnati's East Walnut Hills neighborhood. Branch and its cozy downstairs bar Night Drop are both absolutely beautiful. And manager John Ford and the staff of Branch opened the doors to us just before they opened for the evening service on a Friday afternoon. You can check out the distillerpodcast.com for photos of their space and of our conversation. The Distiller is a series of conversations about meaningful work, as we say, and personally, few people have shaped my idea of meaningful work and my relationship to it more than Kate and Ramsey, although they may not actually know that. I'm sure the reasons why will be apparent to you as you listen. So here is my conversation with Kate Hennessian and Ramsey Ford on The Distiller. Welcome to both of you, and Thank thanks you. for joining me on the podcast. Thanks Yay. for having us. Yeah, it's exciting to, to <laughs> talk to you both. Have you been on the podcast before? One time. We were just on um, Humanize Me. Yeah. On Bart's podcast? Yes. yes. Okay, cool. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Not just. I mean, like, it was like six months, seven months ago. Nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, Bart was, was on my show three, oh, three months ago, something like that. Fun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His energy is, is great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, energy is right. Yeah. Well, I like to start off by sort of just asking people, when people ask you what you do for a living, what do you tell them? <laughs> this is just hard because it's the both of us, and I know that we would answer. We both have, like, the, the formal way of answering, I'm sure, which is that we— You go. Wherever, we, yeah. We, we run a nonprofit social design firm out okay. of Cincinnati, Ohio. All right. So, like, there's, like, the, like— you know, the, the elevator pitch that surrounds that concept. But what do you do for a living, I, Somebody asked me this last night, actually. Uh-huh. I said, I work on complex social change. But then people look at you like, what? You know. Right. And, uh, you know, we work on taking complex social change and innovating on it from the perspective of the people most affected by the problem. Okay. And obviously there's a lot in that. And that's yeah. what I want to. That's what I want to talk about. Just <laughs> yeah. setting the stage that you that you do very very complex work that is hard to describe. It's hard to describe. Yeah, it's like that question even always makes me I'm like, oh man, we should have a better sort of um, elevator to second, you know, whatever description. Yeah. But 
Well, take a second and just describe. So you are the founders of Design Impact. And take a second Mm -hmm. and and maybe not the elevator version, Mm -hmm. but a little more detail about what Design Impact is and and what it does. And just to set the stage, because I kind of want to go back and describe like how you got here and how Design Mm. Impact started. But first, let's talk about what it is and and what it does in as much detail as you want to get into. Yeah, sure. So yeah, we're like so <clears throat> we're a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. There's about ten of us. Uh, we're a group of you know my background's in design. Uh, Kate's background is in education. We have people with community development backgrounds, community organizing backgrounds. You know, social sector research, communications, other designers. Mm-hmm. It's so it's a very multidisciplinary mm-hmm. space. And what we really do is we partner with mostly with organizations. So like. You know, children's hospitals, United Ways, school systems, county governments, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, who have kind of intractable social inequities that they're working on. Okay. Um, which, you know, by their nature are complex. And what we, what mm-hmm. we would do is we partner deeply with them um, to kind of go through a, a process. And that process is sometimes literally a day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's usually not the most effective process in the world. Uh, <laughs> to, you know, up to, you know, like our longest, you know, some partners we've been working with for years, right. you know. Um, and we go through what's called a human-centered design process. Okay. Um, it's kind of the core of how we work. So it's a space where you're doing creative works that is very much focused on bringing kind of your user voice deeply within that space. Okay. Give a, a brief example of a client that you worked with because all that's theoretical at right. this point. And just mm-hmm. just give us a snapshot of what that means. How did somebody get in touch with you? What, what was their need? Mm-hmm. How did you decide to work with them and what came out of it? Sure. Uh, what, did you have a project that's in your mind? I mean, I love talking about it. Since I joined the hospital, it was a good one. Go for one, it. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. So, Go for it. <clears throat> So Cincinnati Children's Hospital, mm-hmm. uh, here in Cincinnati, in Avondale, like number two children's hospital in the nation. Yep. You know, amazing. They um, are, were sitting in a neighborhood that had some of the worst um, um, infant mortality rates in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's kind of like a, a dichotomy there that they wanted to work with. And so they started a program called All Children Thrive, which was really working to make Cincinnati a place where every single child has a chance to thrive. Okay. And what they wanted us to help with was really on the front end of that is trying to say, like, well, as a medical professionals, we, we can define thriving with all of these metrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what does that mean to community members that we're trying to work with and we're trying to make spaces where everybody can thrive? Okay. And so they asked us to basically help them figure that out. So mm-hmm. bring the voice of community deeply into like kind of their ongoing process of change around cool. that. So yeah. we ran a, so that was, they, there was a competitive RFP Mm-hmm. We won that RFP. Um, we started doing work with them. Our strategy was to basically Our RFP for people don't know request oh, for proposal. Request for proposal. So it's a, it just means that like you know there were other firms or people yep. that were trying to get that work. Yep. Um, and so we basically um, recruited and trained about eight um, what we called peer researchers mm-hmm. from two different communities. We were focused on the Avondale and Price Hill communities in Cincinnati, which are very different mm-hmm. uh, demographically and geographically. Um, and we um, basically recruited, trained uh, community members, women, to basically do research with their peers cool. and bring that in. Kind of to like really get us past mm-hmm. kind of like the commonly held voices within that system. Awesome. And so we did, uh, you know, I think about two dozen interviews, a bunch of observations, some focus groups. Um, and then convened large community meetings of both those peer researchers, people who were researched, other people that were interested 
clinicians, nonprofit executives, et cetera, to come together and like synthesize that information and then come up with ideas and eventually prototype and try out community-led solutions that would result in certain ways with ultra and, ultra and thriving in Cincinnati. Yeah. Now yeah. it's like a two-year, two-and-a-half-year process. Okay. Yeah, so like an example of a solution that came out of that was a program called Justice Promoters where um, dealing with noticing the connection between high eviction rates in communities and how that affects community health. Mm -hmm. And so trying to um, reduce the number of evictions by training... Um, by community members that live within buildings becoming sort of leaders within their community to train and sit down with folks that live in their apartment buildings to say, to do something called decoding your lease. So how do you actually understand what you're wow. signing? How do you, you know, advocate yourself for that? I think the powerful thing about that model was that the idea came from community mm -hmm. and it was then decoding your lease worksheet was designed by community and with community, and then those solutions were led by community. So it's not a lawyer just coming knocking on your door saying, yep. these are your rights. I think there's something about um, leadership development along the way of what we're saying is who has power over the, who in the implementation of social change yep. in the lives of the people um, it affects, who, who should have that power and how do we support community members in that in that um, pursuit. So that, and that's an ongoing um, program now. Okay. And that's the, that's the human-centered design part of it for people who aren't familiar with that term is really starting with the human, with the individual mm -hmm. need, not taking an idea or a solution from the institution, right. but coming at it from deep research into the person who's most affected and yes. having the solutions come from absolutely, them. Absolutely, absolutely. I'd say that we use human-centered design as a sort of base foundation, but we layer two other, our theory of change to get wonky mm -hmm. is like a Venn diagram. And one of those circles is creativity and human-centered design, but the other two circles are equity and leadership. So okay. we we are not, if, if we want to just be a human-centered design firm, we would hire all designers, but that's right. why we have a multidisciplinary firm. We feel very strongly that the human-centered design process needs to be deeply rooted in awareness of equity, inequity, racial tension, racial equality, um, and then also leadership development. So how, and that's where we think about how do we develop leaders, both leaders of large systems, like the heads of Children's Hospital, mm -hmm. and also community leaders um, to be able to work in an inclusive way, to understand the power of community voice, to use creativity in their work, mm -hmm. to be comfortable with ambiguity, to have learning mindsets, not expert mindsets. Yeah. Um, and so we see the human-centered design process as a piece of what we do, but we layer those other things on it pretty heavily. Awesome. So I want to come back to all of that. That's amazing context setting. Let's talk about like how you guys got here. You said your background, Ramsey was in design, Kate was in education. Uh, you know, talk a little bit about like, where did you go straight out of college? What did you study? Yeah. What were, and maybe we'll start with you, Kate, and then go, go sure. to Ramsey. What did you do professionally that led to you guys deciding to do this? Sure. And how did you get here? Yeah, so my background, although I have a master's in education and taught for some time, I more broadly would sort of define it as social justice work. Mm -hmm. um, that started, I mean, for, for me, started in sort of high school. And then in college, I uh, actually thought I was going to go into the ministry. Mm -hmm. um, and so I became an English major thinking I would go on to get a master's in divinity. And um, 
studied abroad, not in, in any sort of religious context, but studied and lived in Kingston uh, for three and a half months. And that was really transformative for me in terms of seeing poverty on a global scale and, and mm. um, worked a lot with preschoolers. Um, and it was neat. It was a program where we learned about how society is structured in order to, why that inequity is created. So it wasn't just me coming and teaching at a preschool, but I actually went to college in Jamaica during mm -hmm. that time in Kingston okay. to look at, you know, um, the systems and how they work, literature and how it supports that the history of the Caribbean, mm -hmm. um, and then volunteered in a, in a preschool. It was just the first time I think I'd seen poverty on that sort of scale right. and understood how it's deeply tied to systems yep. and, and um, global systems even. And um, Anyway, and so that's so why I sort of caught the bug, bug there. And then after college, I wasn't really sure if I wanted to go into the ministry anymore, but I moved to New Zealand. So I lived and worked with um, Maori youth. So mm -hmm. Maori are the native population in New Zealand yep. um, who have really done a lot of work leading in, around, in terms of the first peoples around the world, mm -hmm. having the most success in terms of land reclamation um, and things like that uh, from colonialism. Um, and, and representation in representation national in politics. Representation in government, or, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yep. Um, still, though, obviously fighting a yeah. lot of battles there. Yep. And so lived and worked there and did some youth development work. And again, was just like saw systems work and inequity and um, fascinated by that. Mm -hmm. And um, and then came home and I came back to Cincinnati and wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, I sort of became an accidentally became a reading instructor in the West End mm -hmm. and at a school, a new school that was... Um, most of the kids um, were from that area, um, but most all of the kids were on free and reduced lunch. Um, and it was a, you know, 98% African-American, low-income school, and um, learned a lot there. Um, loved my students, stayed with a lot of the, still friends with a lot of students 20 years later, but um, sort of came to this conclusion that it didn't matter how well I taught Romeo and Juliet if somebody mm -hmm. hadn't had breakfast. Yeah. Like it really, like we, you know, it didn't matter how great of a relationship I had with my kids if, you know, and so at that point sort of felt like how do I affect larger systems change um, that can stop some of this this inequity stuff. And, and so I, the, the last job I had before meeting Ram Ramsey and I decided to run Design Impact was I worked, so I said, you know, what, who works on large systems change? I looked at, uh, it's nonprofits, yeah. um, and I didn't really know much about them, so I thought I should go work for one. So I started working at the Ohio Justice and Policy Center. Mm -hmm. It's a criminal justice reform organization around the state of Ohio. And learned a lot of the students that I had been working with had parents that were incarcerated, and so really saw that connection, like the school to prison pipeline, how that happens in our society, and uh, learned a lot about criminal justice reform, um, and was just learned a lot from my amazing colleagues there. Um, and that is where I met Ramsey during that period. Well, okay. I met you right at the end of. OJPs. No, well, I met divorce. you. I met you at a party in high school. Let's be real. <laughs> but that's another Cincinnati. story. That's yeah, another story. Yeah, yeah. But um, we started dating, I guess. You then. Were I was, I was teaching. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, but that's that's sort of the trajectory at pre-design impact. So had jumped, spent about four years in each one of those. Okay. Those um, both uh, at OJPC and teaching. Was the motivation originally to go into the ministry? Was that the same motivation that led you to work in the social sector? And I don't know. I had to do. Um, there's things I love about spirituality, about the religion, um, but the things I, some of the things I didn't love, I had to actually undo a lot of learning around sort of like this idea of, of poor people needing help. 
yeah. which is a very colonial way to look at it, to mm. say that it's so, and really a lot of that is biblical in nature that comes, and it's beautiful, I think it comes from a really good place, but so there's been work that's been done in that name that really actually perpetuates um, power imbalance yeah. um, in the society, in society and in the work that we see. So for me, it was, I think, understanding that it is our role in society to love and care for one another came from my Christian background and that that's the best way we can live is to is for all of us to be bound up in each other's liberation um, but how that manifested I didn't see that manifesting in the church quite the way um, I wanted to, to learn about it in the world that idea um, just say more a little bit about that idea of poor people needing help as opposed to what what's the difference in your sh- in how uh, you the difference is um, poor people having well people experiencing poverty first one not even saying poor people uh-huh. people that are experiencing poverty or challenges having enough having control um, and having power enough to create change and so a lot of that is how we look at the systems that are continuing to pe- it's one you know what I mean to keep people in those places like I'd, I'm much more interested in stopping and in, in changing the the for example, I'm much more interested in getting people $15 an hour instead of $9 an hour rather mm-hmm. than getting bowls of soup out at food, yeah. at soup kitchens. Well, yeah. soup kitchens are great. I'm not criticizing sure, soup kitchens. Sure, 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 but long-term. I'm just saying like, yeah. yeah, that, you know, that can, sometimes that's a, about feeling good for the giver, but like, what does it actually mean when we look at the mirror in ourselves, those, those of us that have had a lot of privilege in life, mm-hmm. we look at the mirror and we look at our systems that have a lot of power and say, what, where are those systems at fault or at stake? Or what are they... Where can they be improved so that we don't keep getting this? What we see in our society is growing inequity, right. growing disparity. Systemic change instead mm-hmm. of just putting band-aids on. Yeah, and yeah. also and some some turning the mirror on ourselves right. versus right. saying, I need to fix you, poor person. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? It's your fault <laughs> versus, no, actually, what, what? how am I perpetuating this? Right, right. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and Ramsey, talk a little bit of you know, your background, design background coming out of college. Yeah, no. So how I got, did you get here? Industrial design degree, um, and um, <clears throat> took that and moved from Cincinnati to Boston, mm-hmm. and eventually found full-time employment in a small design firm uh, in Marblehead, Massachusetts, called Tool Inc. That basically was my first like like big-time real job, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we designed like sporting goods and you know uh, electronic equipment, things like that, yep. you know. Um, but there was a really there was a lot of it was a small business that was doing a lot of entrepreneurial kind of work. So they were they had started their own product development business, like outside of just being a product development business, they had their own products that they were selling that they were doing on the side that they were manufacturing and going okay. out. There were golf products that I mean I helped design, and I've literally never played golf in my life. But you know, <laughs> they were. Uh, but it was. But I learned a lot about just you know what a small business looks like and you know what it can take and how you can kind of like make something real. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, you don't need someone else's permission to do that necessarily. Um, and, you know, so that was my first job out of school. I was there for a couple of years. I met, re-met Kate <laughs> as an adult and decided to move back to Cincinnati. Um, so moved back here and um, really just didn't want to get back into a full-time gig again. Um, so I, like, freelanced at some places, largely at a, uh, a uh, design firm called Kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught at the University of Cincinnati in their design program. I was trying to develop and marketed um, a soft-sided pill container for travel. 
Soft uh, and silent pill organization. Yeah. Look it up. It yeah. works. It, it was works. solid. It's great. You know, the pill pod. I got love a, it. Got a patent on that. Uh, didn't make any money. Um, like you most. made clocks. Yes, yeah, you made, made clocks. clocks. Yeah, right. It could still. It could still turn. It's gonna come through. You know, um, the. Um, and uh, I was doing art, you know, just cartooning. Had a couple of different cartoon series I was putting out there. Basically, a ton of stuff that wasn't making a lot of money, except for you know, kind of a, a twenty-hour-a-week contract doing design work, basically, um, okay. which was cool. And um, that was going on for five years or so uh, before we started designing. You're teaching? At that did point. you say that? Yeah, I was teaching Sorry. at that point too. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So at, at what point? Here we are. We're at the like place mm-hmm. where this starts. At what point did you guys first have the idea of doing something together at all? Yeah. And was and was that this? No. No. We were in. We were living in Kentucky, so it would have been like 2004. Sure. Yeah. We were just recently, like I had recently moved back, and yeah. I don't know why. I don't know what struck us about like we should do something together, it's but it was obvious. Weird. We that just we were like, do we should work together. together. This yeah. is obvious. Yeah. I don't know yeah. why I've never felt that with anyone else in the whole world. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, that you you have good connections with people, but it sure. was like, but not that you want to spend all your days. No, it was weird. We just we started. We looked at buildings. We were gonna start a pancake business. We we're gonna start a, a, <laughs> a pancake sandwich shop. So oh, you, made, you would make sandwiches out of pancakes. Bread. Okay. It's a good idea. Love it. <laughs> Please do that. I'll eat those. Trademark. Uh-huh. The, um, uh, and then an art, art yeah. band. We're going to drive an art. Like a nonprofit art band, education thing. Okay. Yeah. Like a community, like a very like community, community centered coffee shop. Oh, yeah. We're, yeah that, that, you know, we went deep with that. We went and looked at shops. And tons buildings. of big money making ideas. <laughs> Obviously. You know. Um, but what yeah. was the what was the if you can remember back what was the attraction to working together? Other I, than just spending time together, was there something about your complementary skills that you thought would work? What's so funny is I don't think either of us remember why we both just knew we should work together. I remember sitting in that front room in Covington, yeah. whiteboarding out the yeah. coffee shop or the art van. Yeah, I think we I, just. <laughs> I mean, part of it. Part of it was. Part of it, I think, was just like. Like, I didn't have, like, a full-time job. So there was this, like, oh, like, this idea that yeah. you could, like, we can make something yep. outside you of You really out of helped me understand that. Yeah. You, know? you are a, innately a maker. Yeah. I think I would have just not, I wouldn't have right. thought of starting something. He's an entrepreneur. I mean, I think you had an entrepreneurial spirit that I leaned into and sort of was like, wow, we could. Because you had craft, he had crafted this life. Right where he didn't have a singular job. And I was just like, and so supporting, you know, bringing in money, but also doing things he loved. And I was like, oh, you don't have to, it sounds stupid, but I hadn't thought like. No, I don't, I don't think it sounds stupid at all. You can create something. Yeah. I I think it was the process of creation versus working together. It's like, let's create. Right. And then. And listen, we just got, I mean, and then beyond that, I think we like, we got, we just got along well, like conversations flowed. (laughs) Like we like brought out aspects. We're very like, we share a lot of similar, like, traits and values, values but then like yeah. the way we look at problems mm-hmm. and the way that we like like work show with up. people and show up is really different and it is mm-hmm. complimentary mm-hmm. it's easier to see that now but i think we sensed there was a lot i mean like we we kind of threw ourselves into a romantic relationship really quickly we too. did so i think it was just kind of this, like there was an intuitive sense around right. like this is gonna work out yeah you know <laughs> I mean, knock on wood, it's been, so it's been at, least, at, least for the, at least for the past 14 years. <laughs> yeah. It's still early. Yeah. Um, but I mean, there was a sense there around that. And it was just yeah. waiting for the right idea. 
Interesting. Um, I'm glad we got the design impact because I'm not sure any of those other ideas were going to make it. I mean, I still think about the coffee shop sometimes. I think about that pancake sandwich shop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, when the, uh, you know, when the other uh, soft-sided pill idea comes through and the ship comes in. <laughs> the man, clogs. You should seen the felt clogs, Other man. businesses. Those yeah. were special. No, I think, that, I think that maker mindset, that's actually something <laughs> that I have really, um, a few episodes ago, I talked to Beth Graves and, and uh, Christy Goodfellow. Uh, they're both potters. I don't know if you know them. I don't know them. But, but um, Beth makes toys. Christy makes really nice pottery. Huh. But one of the things that came through was this idea that there are people who, when they have an idea, think that that idea could be real. And then there's people that, when they have an idea, don't have the slightest notion of how something gets yeah. made. Right. Yeah. And those are really two different mindsets that until mm. you're part of the process of making something and switch over into... Everything that exists didn't exist at one point, yeah. and somebody thought somebody of it and thought figured of it out and how to make it, it exist. Yeah. That's a big transition into that sort of maker yeah. mindset. So I think that's, yeah, that's uh, really that's interesting. That's, that's a neat parallel. That makes sense. And I think that ties, both of us would define ourselves as problem solvers, like people that love mm -hmm. to ta tackle problems yeah. and figure out how to. That's yeah. the designer, I think, in both of us. So that makes sense, you yeah. know, that, well, hey, we could figure this out, right? right, right. I mean, we'd probably we screw it up along the way, which we have totally, but. Yeah. You sure. know, but still, but we should still try. try it. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did that energy become what eventually became Design Impact? What did you actually start first? So we, I feel like what we had was these conversations. <clears throat> so, so I was practicing design, but mm -hmm. was I, I had been interested. This is, I'll tell from my perspective, and you see if this fits. <laughs> the um, this is the fun. I'd part. always yeah, been yeah. I'd always been interested in just like. <clears throat> You get in design because maybe you like to draw or, you know, that sort of thing. But then also once you're there, you get kind of sold on this idea that, like, you can design a better world. Hmm. You can design things that solve problems. You can make people's lives more joyful, more easy, whatever that happens to be. How do you get from I know how to draw pictures to I can change the world? That's, see, that's the... That's the fucked up part. Is that like <laughs> you don't like it's kind of a it's a little bit of a falsehood. But like the the thing is like you when you get started, especially in industrial design, like you get challenges. Like and they're often you know in school there are a lot of things like you know this is take a take a lawnmower and make it better for the consumer hmm. kind of loosely, and then it gets more specific. But then by the time you're in a professional context, a lot of what you're doing is you know it's it's you know it's not that you're inventing the new like iWatch or whatever it's that like there's an engineer and people that have done that and you're basically putting a sheen on top of it mm -hmm. to make it like marketable mm -hmm. you know and a lot of what you're doing is involved with products that like you could make an argument that like you know like certain technology products makes people's lives a lot easier you can make a lot of downside arguments too sure. um, but that's how you get from you draw pictures of things and those pictures become real things that people use basically. but this I think it's important because this becomes that human-centered design piece, which is kind of what sets you guys apart, that right. you didn't just decide, I want to make a difference in the world, I want to have a social impact, and therefore, not that you would have, but uh, that I'm going to leave my design background behind. You said, the things that I have learned about how things get designed and made, the, the processes that I have learned about how I go from the initial idea to the reality of a solution is the system that I'm going to apply yeah. to social change. That's a fairly unique yeah, and I think idea. that came out of just us, I mean, literally smoking cigarettes out of the window of our apartment after work, talking about, like, 
Like, I, I, I apply a design process in context that I don't always value. Mm-hmm. Kate's constantly working in contexts that are creating value for society, but is interested in the possibility of having other creative processes. Yep. Well, yeah, I think I felt like when I learned about design at first, it, we used to get in these, like, theoretical arguments about design and, you know, but I think when I, when I, when I understood, like, Oh, like Ramsey spent an entire year basically listening and talking to folks who were doing laundry in order to understand how to cut three seconds off of laundry time. Yep. And and how much dignity we give to consumers in the design of consumer products mm-hmm. blew me away. Like, oh, like not only he would he sat in their homes, he talked to them, he listened to them, he tried to understand their beliefs and how that tied to their ideas as women and what that meant. Right. And then would bring those same people in to generate ideas around products. And I thought, like, we don't do this. This is because comes back to this, and yeah. to beat a dead horse, but, like, come back to this idea that, like, we assume we know what's best for people. Yeah. So the way the social sector works, and when I say social sector, I mean philanthropy and government benefits programs, is mm-hmm. we sort of say— you know, here's people that are in usually not ex- never experiencing those problems make the decisions for how money flows down. And it usually flows down five or six levels before it hits the people who are most affected by the problem, who never have any say in the design yeah. of how those programs reach them. Who have it just handed to them. Have it to them and should be thankful. Right. Right. And often those programs, let alone the um, sort of theoretic, the troubling like, theoretical issues with that. It's also the programs are less effective. Yeah. We know that when we design things based on deep understandings of consumers, those are better products. Right. Right? But why don't we apply that same yeah. thinking when we design social solutions? Well, if, you it, came, if you yeah, came you know at, I mean? at P&G with a, with a product idea and ran it up the ladder to your management and hadn't done exhaustive deep. consumer yeah. right. research and validation, right. they would throw it out the door. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so when we're, so that, that's, that to me was like, oh, we, like the sector mm. could use it. I mean, having right. worked with enough organizations at point in schools and seen um, how powerful it was. And so I think that's when we, and Ramsey loved design. He just didn't love the ends of what he was sure. getting to work on. And I love working on social change work, but didn't always love the environments. I did. You know, the, create, mm-hmm. the creative and innovative part. I think it's not just because creativity is fun. It's because we know yeah. <laughs> that when we think divergently, we get to better solutions. Yeah, the process works. Yeah. yeah. So I felt like I think that was when we started to. And you, you I mean, we're at this time and then getting your master's. Yes, yeah, so that inspired me to, those conversations inspired me to then like really focus a master's. I had a chance to go back and get a master's degree at DAB. Okay. Uh, which is the design school in Cincinnati. Yep. And um, I uh, focused on the connection between human-centered design and community mm. organizing as parallel processes oh, wow. for community change. Okay. Um, yeah. And so that was kind of gave us like beyond conversations, like a theoretical basis for the work. Mm-hmm. And we were going to like, we basically were just like, hey, like when you, we finish the master's, let's, let's kind of quit our jobs. Let's go like... Mainly kind of like do some international work and see what we can do with it. We both had done international work before Mm -hmm. and we're both sort of ready to do something different. And it saved a little bit of money. And so we thought, okay, let's, um, we had like 3,000 bucks or something, $5,000 or something. We were going to like travel and... Mm -hmm. Change the world no, on no. $5,000. That was a, it was a book idea. <laughs> no, I think we were just thinking lightly about it. Like, yeah. let's go volunteer somewhere and see right. if we can apply this thinking in a way that community wants and makes sense and mm-hmm. is helpful. Okay. And we're going to be sort of open about yeah. it. And then 
at the time, Ramsey was working. Yeah, was, at, yeah you tell us. I was right. at Kaleidoscope, uh, the design firm in town, and basically yep. just like had this like very chance meeting with the CEO. Um, mm-hmm. And I was only like a twenty-hour-a-week contractor there, um, but I think he was interested in recruiting me longer term into the firm. Yep. And so we had a conversation about five-year plans, and this is like right after we had had this conversation. Yeah, he's so I was like, "Where like, do you want to be in five years?" So I was very honestly said, "Like, I, I, I want to be doing this other thing." Yeah. And this like amazing response came back that just said, amazing. "Like, well, why don't you tell me more about that, and why couldn't we be a part of that with you?" Cool. Um, which is where we went from like, "Let's, let's do, let's try our little idea," to like, like eventually we basically had a we made, you know, we, we put together a pitch deck. Mm-hmm. Like got feedback, refined it, pitched to the lawyers, you know, refined it, pitched to the accountants, refined it, and eventually got funding to like actually start a nonprofit to do this work. Wow, um, and that was about a year. It was an incredible like opportunity. Of, of yeah, yeah. I feel like yeah. was, yeah, just awesome. And yeah. I think that speaks a lot about Matt Cornell and yeah, putting you know just deciding to do something valuable with his totally yeah the profits his company was making. <clears throat> so that original, that was Design Impact. Yeah, well, yeah. We, we did a whole naming thing and Design Impact was the best name we could come up with. Only because of the logo. Well, we drew the logo first. It was a good logo. <laughs> so we stuck with it. <laughs> We've gotten feedback that it's, it's not easy to protect yeah. as a name. So, well, whatever. It's our name. Yeah, yeah. it's, yeah. it's yeah. your name. <laughs> yeah. And what was, the, what was the, because this was travel-based and you were going to go to India and you were going to, you know, this wasn't the Design Impact that Design Impact is today. No. So what was that mission when you finally refined that idea? What were you going to do and how were you going to do it? <laughs> well, I think it was a lot of it was to apply like what Ramsey had learned in his thesis around what is the connection between human-centered design process and community organizing. Um, so a lot of what we learned and thought about was what's most important in any sort of design process is to sit and listen and be with community first before making assumptions about what you should work on or whatever, mm-hmm. and that community should drive that process. Okay. So um, that is sort of the model that we followed and yeah. had a connection, and it was a, kind of a long story, but ended up in India in a village with a nonprofit that was, we were very intentional about wanting to work with an organization that was led by the community they were serving mm, okay. um, versus so there's large like West, like large Western sort of like UN dominated programs, things like that. Yeah. We wanted to smaller grassroots work. Um, and so we just stayed in and they had a volunteer program. They wanted us to come. So we just stayed and lived for the first three months before even take taking on any sort of, project to build relationships and just be in community and listen and learn. Awesome. Um, and then through that, by working with community and asking that community where we could be helpful, sort of started to generate the first two projects that um, that we worked on. Yeah. And um, What were those? Um, well, at that time, so Ramsey's background was in industrial design or product design. They were product-based. So one was a um, charcoal briquette that reduced indoor air emissions. So mm-hmm. if you are familiar with the problems with wood-burning fires inside yep. and how the respiratory illnesses and death that that causes, it was a particular thing that the community, this organization, had already done some work with but needed refining and needed to look at the market, the design of the product itself, how it was packaged, would people use it, understand behavior around it to change those health outcomes. And then the other was a fair trade soap. Actually, the small organization that I really needed was a small biofuel making facility um, that for local farmers. It was an agricultural area. And when you make biofuel, you get glycerin as a byproduct. And so they had all this glycerin and they were like, what should we do with it? And they heard about fair trade as a thing. And uh-huh. so had started pressing soaps, but didn't really know what fair trade consumers wanted. Should right. they do this? And so we spent 
quite a bit of time. Two years. Two years working on fair trade soap in a village um, in Tiruchuli, India. Fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> and how, that's so two how years? That oh, yeah. yeah. So, so then... No, that's it, though. How does that... <laughs> right. So where, what then? You, you made Sorry. some soap two years and on now soap. We, no, no, no. So then we... Um, about six or eight months... We, we're keeping this little blog that we think only our mothers were reading. Um, they were definitely the only people commenting, commenting on the blog. With lots of <laughs> I think other people might have read points it. and hugs. Um, and, yeah, and so somehow it got picked up by a larger design... Um, uh, in the, in the web and the internet. And so we started getting emails from designers around the world, really, saying, what you're doing is really cool. Can I help? And at the same time, we were meeting other in, um, nonprofits in India called NGOs. So other NGOs around that were saying, we could really use this kind of perspective or this kind of thinking. Could you come work with us? And so we thought, well, we can't be in all these places at the same time. What if we started a fellowship program? So this is, again, about your idea like of when you have an idea and some people, like neither of us do anything about a fellowship program. There's the two of us sitting in this, in plastic stools in India saying, well, like, well, how do you, how might one for start a fellowship program? Right. So we did Let's some research and, yeah. Yeah. and sketched some stuff out and researched and listened to people that had done that before and sketched out a fellowship program and got it funded by the National Endowment for the Arts, which still blows me away. Yeah, it was nuts. And we'll never forget the day that six people, they came from all over the world, including India, designers, and six people stepped off a plane to come to our fellowship program. Holy cow. Where we were just like... I mean, nuts. Because it's like when it's your own butt on the line, it's your own butt on the line, and you can like you can be a fool on your own. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, you had six other people that like... We're like, I mean, this literally, is like we have a legitimate no credibility, program. and they are like, like quit jobs and moved yeah, across the world in some cases. Right. To yeah. come like... Quit from like frog design and like big places. That you'd never met. No, oh, never just met. Seen just the resumes, had the, yeah, they had the Skype. conversations. We Skype interviewed them. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we yeah we got a <laughs> sure, lot of applicants. We got like over 150 applicants. It was crazy. Amazing. It was nuts. There was a need. There was like a there, there like a is. real strong need and desire for it. There's a know? lot of so, designers cool. that want to do this kind of work. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so then we ran a fellowship program. We ran it a second time. So we ran two rounds of the fellowship yeah. program. Then and we branched. No, you it was interesting about that. <clears throat> when we first, those first couple of projects were like product-based social enterprises, which was kind of the change model. <coughs> mm-hmm. But then when we did the fellowships, we moved into like helping people design women's empowerment programs mm-hmm. and nutritional supplements and yeah. online, you know, databases to connect tutors of like yeah. of youth. I mean, like, so it really diversified and I think really opened was one of the things that opened us up to like what Design and Back would become was okay. saying, you know, one of the reasons There's, we were in India in the first place was because of product based things. And then we realized that there's a lot of other things we could do. Yeah. So, yeah. You keep going. Yeah, so we were. That was humming along. Some projects were better than others. Mm-hmm. Some were. How long were you there? Well, a total of two and a half or so years. Okay. Um, and then the, the fellowship for two years. Yeah. Right. So it was both. It was both. We, we were like solid for four, mm-hmm. like yeah. doing India work. Us personally, we weren't there the whole time. Right. Right. Yeah, but, but we were doing the first four and a half years were all India. Yeah, and um, learned a ton through mm-hmm. that time. And sort of came to this point that like we either need to move here permanently full time and get like citizenship, mm-hmm. or apply this model back in the U.S. The reason to so there was a lot of things going on. I was very sick. My body did not mm. take well, and I I got quite a quite ill. Um, and we had some family members that were ill at home. India changed its visa laws, making it really hard for us to stay more than three months at a time. It was just sort of a series of things, and we yeah. sort of came to this point. And we were having a hard time funding it, so 
almost all of the international work that's done from the U.S. to anywhere in the world is funded on the coasts. Hmm. There are, if you if think if you think about it, even do you know many international organizations in Cincinnati or people that fund right. internationally? They don't. I don't yep. know why that is. It's I don't know if it's a mentality or what. But so, we just did not have, especially because we were living in India, we did not have a lot of contacts in D.C. and in um, where a lot of the international dollars flow. Yeah. Again, we were funded by the National Endowment for the Arts and Kaleidoscope through funding. But we the people we knew, our networks were mostly in Cincinnati, and those folks. We're not funding international work at right. all. So we sort of, and we missed doing the work ourselves. So that was the other thing mm. about the model is we were ending up sort of, we didn't get to do any of the work ourselves. We were just making sure fellow, you know, we were doing a lot of logistic stuff with right. fellows. So there's a lot of things that sort of led us to think maybe we need to rethink this model. Mm-hmm. Does We know that the work has value. We were getting really good results, but maybe the model isn't right. So we really innovated gotcha. on the model at that time. And um, also met some amazing folks from the Center for Creative Leadership out of North Carolina and started doing leadership development work around innovation and looked at the, looking at the connection between innovation design and leadership development. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, empathy is a huge skill that you have to employ in design, right? How do you empathize with whoever is you're solving for? And that's also yeah. a leadership development skill. And how do those play off each other and what we're developing? Um, so, yeah, so started to see that we could do work in a different way. And okay. um, so decided to move back to Cincinnati and start the work here. Um, while what's great is that a lot of those solutions or programs were still going. So our model has always been that it's the organization that that like holds the so that will be become the soap buyer or the implementer of the long term solution. So what's cool is that a few of those projects are still running great. in India now. Okay. But then we moved back here, and I'll stop talking now. It's a long. No, no, it's no. A, it's quite is, a story. This is the story. Yeah. Because, yeah. You know what you're doing is such transformative interesting work now Mm. and this is great because the story that you're telling is we figured it out as we went along totally you know and that's fantastic we did not know and still feel in that space yeah no yeah we don't know I mean yeah Yeah. (laughs) you obviously you know a lot though. we know a ton of things but we don't know know. but there's so many but in the world we I think part of it's a as an org though we also believe that like like you have to be able to change. You have to be able to adapt to yeah. do this work to serve the yeah. communities we're trying to serve to like change the systems we're trying to change. Like yep. a big part of that is we teach it, and I think part we of have the, to part of who it. we are is walking that walk. Right. Which means that like while we are we have expertise, we're always learning and recognize that we need to know more. Yep. Yeah. Well, so how do you do that? Because you you move back to the United States, you have this model, you have you've learned a ton of stuff, mm-hmm. and then you have to move back into Cincinnati, into a culture that, that where the social sector is largely dominated by that. Mm-hmm. We're going to bring a solution to you, totally. and here it is mindset. Yeah. And you know what you want to do, or at least you have a a better idea about yeah. it. But essentially, you're starting something brand new yeah and the model needed to change yeah in a, in a town that you know that that work is largely dominated by the united way and uh-huh. and larger organizations and and very well-meaning organizations but with entirely different models uh-huh. talk a little bit about like you move back and where do you start like how do you how do you create the same traction I wonder if we'll frame this the same yeah no i mean so I, you go i mean our we haven't talked about that. It was an interesting year or two. Yeah, I remember reframing. It's hard. I have some like specific times. So we we did a hard a hard pivot, you know, on the on that model, which meant that like we all ended of the fellowship program. All of the assets that we had built around one weren't transferable to the other for the most part. Yeah, you know? like and so yeah, we everything was built. Yeah, so we went from like us six full time fellows, like a, a grant writer and a staff member in India, like 
to just us, right? You know, and then back in your hometown, trying to start a thing with with not. I mean, with with literally, we like we didn't we didn't have any money. We didn't have like the business didn't have money. It was like I remember walking around Northside on a rainy like March day when we were living at our friend's house. Who were we living? Ben oh, and Jody. Jody. Yeah. yeah, remember that? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, we've lived a lot of a lot of places over the past <laughs> the last few years, but the uh, that was a uh, that was just a tough one, you know. And like figuring out, and then we got like a the 10k Tarsadia grant Grant from this Tarsadia Family Foundation mm-hmm. that hired us to write a uh, partnership guide for nonprofits and creatives in India, which was just nuts. Which kind of like gave yeah. us a little life, and then we. I think of it as like we kind of we started networking and two things happened yeah. in that space. So one, interesting. What are you gonna say? One. <laughs> I don't know how you frame well, it. That's good. One was that one was like serendipitous in that like we got recommended to meet with this guy Terry Grundy from United Way, mm-hmm. who like liked what we were laying down and said you got to talk to you know the head of uh, community impact, and they just have they just want they wanted to invest in design thinking or human-centered design, and they were just talking about it right when we moved back to town. Oh, wow. And that was something that was just like a, it was just like a, like a. a well, it was just social innovation. It wasn't human innovation. Event. Yeah, they didn't, it but was any did, kind of social innovation, but yeah. But we came with some ideas and we partnered with them and that's been an ongoing partnership. We're still so in that a great was, partnership. That was mm-hmm. a beautiful thing that like really gave us like a basis for Cincinnati. And then we are strategically, we ran a free workshop that we invited people to and some of those turned into like some of our first partners in Cincinnati out of that. Cool. So that was kind of like our Yeah. But it was like definitely like a like a like a 6 month like I'd say a like, year, yeah. Like kind of like oh shit. Well, we got other yeah. jobs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember like you that I you, got a full-time job at UC during that time okay. period. Yeah. yeah, you didn't come back just hit the ground running. You had to no. rebuild from uh-huh. the yeah. ground up. And yeah. we weren't sure. We didn't have a plan. I mean, uh-huh. we didn't. I mean, because we've been so invested in this one thing. It's almost like, I'm thinking about this now. It's like when you do something for a while that you invest everything in before you can do another thing, you need this period of Yeah. reflection that has to go pretty deep in order to, you know, I think in order to make the right next move. Yeah. So I think we had a period. We threw a lot of stuff at the wall. We had all we taught. We taught. We were taking kids to India. I remember we were teaching classes at UC. Anyway, yeah. lots of different stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're still <clears throat> figuring it out. So you didn't move back. You didn't. That last six months in India is not. We're going to build the business plan. We get back and hit the ground running. You move back with an idea, and mm-hmm. I, it sounds like to some degree out of necessity mm-hmm. for you and for family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you didn't just hit the ground running you, you yeah. it took it took some time to rebuild Absolutely. it a time of feeling lost i mean just yeah. to be honest of feeling really lost as mm. people and right. working through that so it yeah. is it is funny we're we're coming up with a 10 year anniversary of design impact this year yeah. but literally it's like there's like a india and then after india and it's at this point it's like almost equal mm, weight four and six. Right. Like four and six or yeah. so yeah. you know so it's just interesting that you know, because yeah. we, we were a ten-year-old organization, but it really feels like we're like a six-year-old organization. Interesting. Yeah. What were the, you know, as you built that new organization, what was the same and what was different? Um, and obviously, you had to work through mm. all of those questions. But yeah. like, how much of what you learned in India was directly a- applicable? How much did you have to relearn? about the whole way that you are operating? I think l- what was definitely applicable was like how to run a project with a community partner, like, mm. which is still what we do. It's how do you work with community members and an organization and A, understand their, what's happening between them relationally. How do you fund it? 
How do you do that in a co-creative way from beginning of identifying the problem mm -hmm. to doing discovery or research to synthesizing it to ide generating ideas and then implementing community-led solutions? What does that process look like? That took us years to figure out. And we're, again, we're the, now we're doing such systems, like bigger, the, the projects I would say are more complex mm -hmm. in nature. And so we're still learning about how to do that well. We'll always be learning about how to do that better. But that stayed the same, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like the values were there, you know, so yeah. the, the values of, of just honoring the people that we're working with and, you know, like deeply investing in um, inclusion within the process yep. and creativity within the process. Those are the kind of things I think stuck Those stayed with. the same. But the big difference was our change model was a fellowship program mm -hmm. and doing, you know, like specific on the ground projects and that. We, that model doesn't work, didn't, wouldn't work for us in, in these states. And so we kind of morphed It, it might. Having, we've always talked about trying to do it. We've, done it we've, we've actually placed a few fellows in the states. Yeah. You know. What's different about it? What, what works and what doesn't? It, some of it's like a, like it's a funding thing. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, there's something about, you know, there's a power dynamic that when you're pushing largely like, you know, um, Western designers into India that, they will work and do what they would get paid, you know, paid in the States $70,000 to do. They will, they will do that work for, um, for a lot less money. Because it's, makes, cause it's an experience, because it's a fellowship, because yeah, yeah. they're growing. And you can't frame that same fellowship in the States, I think, the same way. I don't oh, know. We've never talked about this. I think there's a there's finan for me, it's mostly a financial thing, where it's just like, you know, A, I, there's... Sorry, go ahead. A, it's hard to fund the fellowship and pay fellows mm -hmm. to do the work and be people honestly when they're doing work and communities are doing the work they don't necessarily want a fellow like they want partners they want people that are hmm. either a part of their community for a long time they want they don't want experts. somebody who dropped in from another city and is going to leave in three months to yeah come, or somebody yeah. who's like if you're doing that like who's you know a couple years out of you know grad school and mm -hmm. maybe or maybe not has really the ability to like do this project well. Yeah, know? I think that's what I think I'd say. We were better at doing the projects ourselves than running the, a fellowship. Gotcha. And also I think social design is actually a real thing. And I don't, I still to this day don't think the best work is done by designers that have not worked. Like I think to develop a practice in social design, you need, I deeply believe it needs to be rooted in a practice of equity and inclusion, which is not what is trained in design school. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like for us, it's, we became experts at social design, not human-centered design by mm. itself, mm -hmm. but social design, Interesting. which needs, must be informed in a multidisciplinary lens. That's my, you know, how I see it. Yeah. And so I think that's why what we offer now is way more valuable than somebody that's just like, hey, I, I think I want to do something meaningful with my life. Let me try to work on this super complex social challenge right. when I've been working in a design firm for the last 10 years or five years. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah. And, and obviously there's skills that are applicable. That's not to be criticize those folks but you know what i'm saying like no. i think it, it's it's right. expertise in and of itself well um yeah. so bringing my experience of of you, yeah. you guys into this because yeah. this is one of the i i've known both of you for a little while yeah um and we you and soccer i coaches yeah exactly yeah kate coached uh, my 17 year old soccer yeah. team when, well, was when like he was 10. like five yeah i found a picture of that the other day i'll have oh, to really? send it to you <laughs> but we you and i had a conversation kate like four years ago or something, yeah. maybe now, where we were talking, it's funny, because we were talking about the idea of meaningful work. 
yeah. and what that means and that idea of somebody who's worked in any sector suddenly decides they want to do meaningful work. Yeah. And you challenged me at that point, which was a super meaningful, like I, th- I feel like pivotal conversation for me, hmm. where you said, why? why? What do you want to do? Do you want to actually make change or do you just want to feel good about yourself? You didn't say it. You were uh, much yeah, kinder to me there, than that. But that was basically what you were saying um, is, you know, that the process of social change is a, is a commitment mm-hmm. and is something that you have to learn. And specifically what you did say mm-hmm. is that you can't come into these situations where people are grappling with issues that affect their daily lives mm-hmm. and have anything to say, any, mm-hmm. uh, first of all, um, authority is the wrong word, but any credibility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, without being invested in these situations for a long, long time. Yeah. And it challenged me at the time to think, well, I, I want to do, I say I want to do meaningful work. Mm-hmm. Why? Do I want to do it just to assuage my conscience yeah. for a short period of time? Or do I, do I want to do it because I'm, I'm invested in long-term results and in people's lives? And I think that different mm-hmm. mindset, with this podcast, we talk a lot about meaningful work that means a lot of different things it does yeah but but that was the first time that I had talked to somebody who said like the first thing you got to do when you talk about why you want want to do meaningful work is look at yourself and say what what are you trying to satisfy and how how is that going to hinder your participation in actually having anything any any meaningful result yeah, and, and that, so yeah, well, I'm glad that was helpful. I, oh, it was I feel like we helpful. still struggle with. It. I mean, even just like I don't know if you've talked about this. We early on we had to talk about like how do you separate ego from the work? Yeah, and we all need to do that to some degree, right? Because when you know, but um, yeah, really, and that and that even ties back to some of that like white savior stuff of like yeah, let totally. me save the world. You yep. know, what is that about? And that's actually about ego. And how do right. you identify when that's at play within you? And how do you? Get, get rid of that so it doesn't taint the purpose yeah, of the Yeah, and it's, it's certainly empathy that you talked about, but it's also, uh, and these are similar but not the same, humility of being able, and I've seen you guys do this in your work, of being able to come into a situation and say from a, from a, uh, a position of great humility, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to solve this, and I won't know until I've spent a lot of time, and I may never know, you may know. Yeah, like I my know. job, my yeah. job may ultimately be pulling out of you your solution, yeah, and not having to help you. And I think those yeah. are huge mindset shifts. Yeah, it, it's stuff's hard. I mean, one of the, I mean, this might be a tangent. Uh, but we're all about tangents. Uh, Go for it. One of the things I've been grappling when we're hitting ten years, and I don't know, I'm just one of the things I've been grappling with a lot lately is. Just how is even just trying to separate from the need for the work to go well. I, my colleague of mine who teaches me a lot named Amy Houghton is thinking about this with me and helping me think about it. But she um, was talk, she was a part of this fellowship and she was with some amazing folks from all over the country who were really the founders and had done a lot of the major initial push on the environmental work in our country at mm-hmm. the federal level. Mm-hmm. And they were all in their 70s and 80s and, you know, had to look back and almost all of what they had worked for is now being torn down and repealed. And I think that's what's really hard about this work is that you don't always get to see the impact of it right away. You also know that it can be destroyed. And like, how can you love, um, how can you show up without needing to know Mm. that it's fixed, you know? Because a lot of these problems are more complex than we can figure out or there's not enough right. resources to do that or there's greater, much greater forces at play. So that's been, I mean, I don't have an answer for that. That's my own existential crisis right now is what does that mean and how do I still keep going knowing that 
it might get worse. I mean, as I'm watching, I mean, even the last 20 years I've been working on social change work, income and disparity has gotten worse, particularly around racial, when you, when you pair that with race disparity. So, yeah, it's hard. I'm sorry, it's depressing. But no, it's real. But it's real, you know. the work. And that's actually that's something I wanted to talk to you about is that kind of Sisyphean task of, mm-hmm. of continuing to push it up the hill another thing that you and I talked about mm-hmm. is that idea where um, in my experience of hearing about some of the stuff that you guys are, are working on, it's like somebody brings you a particular challenge. They want to solve a very specific or discrete problem. I want to, yeah, know, this doesn't exist. It needs to exist. Let's make this. But when you start to look at the, at the systemic factors that contribute to that right. and you're like, well, how do we not just fix this problem? How do we deal with those issues? But those issues go back to, yeah. Decades of political leadership and yes. the founding in the, of the country and like Minimum an entire wage, philosophy of life. Yeah. And where do you decide to plug in based on what you can actually do without getting overwhelmed by these issues? How do you guys individually and together continue to bring yourself to this work for now 10 years and not get overwhelmed by the scope of the task overall or by the current political climate and the, and the resistance that that creates. Do you want me to go first? <laughs> go first. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't, I mean. I, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's really hard. I think Ramsey naturally deals with it better than I do. I think I, I would call myself a sensitive person, so I have all the feels, all the, you know. And so I've had to do a lot of work on that. I think separating, I think that ego work is important, like separating. I think I meditate, try to meditate every day. I think because I need to have some space from my emotions and um, to get distance myself. That's a, that's a huge part of what I've been able to keep doing the work. Um, our marriage is a huge part of why I've been, I mean, I think I lean into Ramsey so hard. I mean, Ramsey's a really joyful, happy human and Finding humor in the work, I think creativity, like the the infusion of creativity, I'll never let go in our mm. work, and I think it's undervalued a lot in social change work, um, because there's joy in it and there's creation in it, and just as we're we're talking about essentially destruction, right? What is the creation? And I try and focus on the creation as a source of joy in life, as a place to get energy from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then consistent perspective from elders, from other people that have been in the in the work to help. I mean, there's so many folks along the path that have helped me get perspective and uh, understand that. Um, and then we went to a four-day work week uh, mm-hmm. year two years ago, um, which was huge in terms of work-life balance. And how? What did it do for you? Um, it allowed me to to give myself permission to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. That's really it was, it. was about taking care of myself so that I could show up and do the work better. Um, and so I think we've done a lot of work on our own work life balance. So we, you know, we work really hard. We work thirty six, forty hours a week, but we also we have a house in the woods for a reason. We try mm-hmm. and get away. You know, mm-hmm. where we we draw pretty firm boundaries on that and that I, I would need in order to keep doing the work. That's what I'd say in terms of those are the, those are the things that keep me going. I don't know. What'd you say? Uh, yeah. I mean, like there's the personal care part of that, which for me is bourbon. You know, <laughs> well, <laughs> no, no, I wasn't saying that for you. I forgot. <laughs> nice, I forgot to mention. <laughs> nice timing. Bourbon helps. Um, now I don't need to make a self-deprecating joke. So that's fine. The, um, no, it's uh, you know, it, it, 
like art projects. I do a lot of art projects. Yeah, building projects. Like do. something that just takes the other part of your brain is totally disassociated. Yeah. And then there's a part of it where it's, you know, it's, it's trying to live out the values that you espouse in work. So then, you know, how do you show up in community with family, with friends, you know, uh, with some of those same values, um, mm-hmm. but within spaces where like, it's not that you would have any more influence or control, but like you can see change in different ways, hmm. you know? So I think that's, to me, is really a helpful thing is to just like not turn that off when we leave per se, but um, but to look at the rest of our life through some of those lenses um, where it can be less frustrating or less challenging. Um, yeah. And then also I think that, um, you know, as an org, you know, I think one of the fears is that, you know, like, so you, you do this for, 20, 30 years, and you're like, what What did I do during that time? Like, I think I feel like I was, you know, doing the right work. I was on the right side of things, but like, what happened? You know, we've talked to a lot of people that have had careers in the social sector, and that's, you know, and they're, you know, a lot of baby boomers retiring out, and that's kind of like their reflective space, which is, you know, it's a, it's hard not to hear that um, in work. And I I do feel like, I don't think we have a solution to that. I mean, but I feel like, what we do well as an organization is learn um, and yeah. we challenge ourselves to do better um, and to pursue excellence and to, you know, realize greater impact. And we don't really have an interest in to keep doing the work the same way we've always done it because no. just because we can find people that want to partner with us <laughs> to do that. So we are taking risks, trying new things and really are moving in different directions. So I feel like one of the things we do a lot of are like relatively acute like programmatic service, you know, solutions, like where it's like, hey, like this is a problem. How can we think about solving that? Um, but we've been really proactive in spending a lot of our company's time and energy trying to move what I would say is upstream from that. So how do you start moving from those into like that, like Kate spoke about earlier, that deeper reflection within the system? How do you start taking concepts of advocacy and policy change? Because mm-hmm. to your points around like, you know, like people see backsliding on some of the hard work they've done. Mm-hmm. And it's not that policies and advocacy can't backslide, but the fact is that you can take huge chunks out. So how do we start yeah. to build that capacity in the back end of projects? And so I think we're doing work. Once again, I don't I don't have like a, a belief that it's actually gonna be like, whoa, like you guys unlocked how to like make an equitable society, you know, <laughs> with your little 10 person design firm. But I mean, like, I do feel like with something that helps me rest at night is knowing that we're doing due diligence. Yeah, that's yeah, that. that's I agree. You know, so. Yeah, that's not, I, I agree. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting that idea. Like, it seems like it would be something that is key to any long-term <laughs> career in this work. Is the idea that the work that you're doing is somehow based more on due diligence than it is on mm. immediate outcomes? Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, and b- somehow being okay with that. Right. Like not theoretically being okay with no, that like because one day it's going to stare you in the face. One day yeah. you're going to look back at your work and say, right, this is what I did. Right. You know? Yeah. And just learn, I mean, and which is hard because you learn about things that sometimes throw cast, can cast a shadow in some of the work that you recently did mm-hmm. simply because you're, you're learning from that work and you're learning from what the world's learning right. at the same time. So. Right. And the work gets what the work takes and what it takes to make it effective changes, yes. changes yeah. over time. Absolutely. Changes rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. Like if we were still running a fellowship program, we would not be running. We would. You wouldn't be talking to us right here. We would not be, <laughs> would not be doing it. You know? yeah. yeah. True. True. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, how does the the kind of the last thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about is how this work and this perspective 
comes back. We talked a lot about the inextricability of this from your personal lives and how you guys work together. Ha has your relationship changed in any significant ways around the work? Do you feel like the ways that you work together are still sort of the ways that you imagined yourselves working together all those years ago? You're gonna, what are you going to say? I mean, I used to, I used to be our accountant. He did. It was Which awful. Is, and I mean, like, it you know, dangerous. literally, our, our, we have an operations director now who Thank God. has seen those books. And she's like, I hope we never get audited <laughs> because they aren't 10 years old yet and they are not real. <laughs> so, so, like, that's changed a little bit. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, we struggled. A, I think we didn't struggle a lot, but like, so, you know, you have titles, you know, and mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. co-founders. Um, but And Kate is... You know, I would used to say like technically the ED, you know, and that like we shared executive director-ish sort of things. I'm the design director. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't have it. That doesn't have quite the same amount of meaning, you know. Um, but I would say that over the years, like she's emerged as like the strategic visionary of design impact. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I would say, you know, like okay. that's real. You, you know, I mean, like, and not just like educators wait for you know, kind of what the big next is, what we need to do, that that idea of like constant improvement. I mean, I'm not much of a person who's big on feedback, so that's not coming from me. That's coming from her. <laughs> and, you know, just the, the, the developing the culture of the organization to like accept that and move forward together. Like, that's just, you know, like that's a, that's a been a change. I mean, it's been a change. I think we've managed it well and I still show up and do a lot of good work for the organization. But I would say that like where we started is kind of like a very much like a like a shoulder to shoulder leadership sort of thing. Like I, I would say that, you know, Kate's Kate's the leader of the mm. organization at this point. That's changed. Mm. That's real. What hasn't changed is I think how close we are through the work and how much we need each other to do the work. And I just don't I couldn't imagine doing it. Without it, I just. Mm. Yeah, there's no way. No, no. <laughs> I mean, I know for a fact that the business would fail without Kate. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it might survive without me, but I don't think Kate would survive without me. So. No, I what wouldn't. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Right on. Mm -hmm. Last question is in a in a large sense. How does your experience now inform how you want? You you have a a beautiful son. Uh, thank you. What do you want to teach him about work? Like you oh, guys have a, a really unique relationship to work. And, uh, you know, do you think at all about, I mean, that's ways that's off That's a really neat him. question. I mean, I could, well, what first came, what, were you going to say something? No, no, I wasn't. No. I don't know. I should think about, I'd like to think about that more. But what first came to my mind, I mean, I think about part of the, if I'm being really honest, part of the reason we, I wanted to start Design Impact is that, I hadn't found a really healthy work culture. Mm. And I feel like, I think in what, in Ramsey hadn't found a place where he, his work, he felt had really the impact in the world he wanted it to. And I think what I want my kid to know about work is that you can have a life where you are respected and you get to work out of your strengths mm -hmm. and you're surrounded by people that love you and challenge you in loving ways and do good in the world or however that whatever that means for you mm -hmm. all at the same time it's not too much to ask for it's not mm -hmm. you might mm -hmm. have to build it right but 
it doesn't mean that you can't have that and that you should seek that because you know we talk, you're with the people you work with more than you're with your family yeah so like I ought to think real intentionally about who the hell those people are mm-hmm. and I am honored to work with our co- my, like our colleagues I mean they're an amazing group of people that thank God I get to work with those people every day and that matters yeah and so I would that's what I would say I don't know well, what would you tell them about work? The, it was because I was thinking like. Oh, but did I miss you you the question? You, no, no, no. no, no, no. Okay. I mean, you get a great answer. It just made me think my own answer was like. You no, know, your answer's uh, good. I'm sure. I mean, I was gonna say like, you know, like work ethic. You yeah, know? you do have a no, sure. Like, you, like, 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 you gotta be able to like, you gotta be able to lay it down sometimes. You have like, to work an hard. An ability to like yeah. understand how to solve problems like generically, like an orientation to yeah. that, and then see like to build relationships you know so i think one of the things that like Healthy, i wish yeah. i'd known earlier in my career was just like how important a relationships are like in like a micro working sense but then just be in terms of you know it's like why people try to send their kids to ivy league schools is because you build a set of relationships that you can you can do you mean leverage. networking or do you mean relationships I mean, kind of both but like that idea that like every time you talk to somebody like it's an opportunity to learn it's an opportunity to grow it's an opportunity that could like huh. become actual opportunities to do work yeah and make the world a better place however you want to look at it i like the way you're framing it um and just that like and there's you know there's simple ways to do that and there's meaningful yeah. ways to mm-hmm. do that but it's a skill set that i think is really i mean i'm thinking about like my i'm thinking when you framed it as like our beautiful two-year-old. <laughs> like, I'm thinking about like, gonna put him to like how 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 can he be as successful as possible and never move back into my house? Oh, at 16 years. I'm already there. The, uh, but you know, right so now that's we what gotta I was get him put his toys away. You know? yeah. yeah, right. I don't yeah. see. I'm not seeing it yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's beautiful because it's both sides of it. It is. Yeah. It is like you know the the sort of emotional like he can have it all yeah. to work and. The practical relationship too. Done. You gotta, yeah. you gotta do it, and you gotta see. Yeah. I hate networking. I've always considered right. myself yeah. a horrible networker. Yeah. But when you put it in, but when you frame it in terms of, I, I'm all about relationships. Learning, yeah. And when I think yeah. about like that making relationships with people and seeing those as the groundwork that you're, that the sort of tapestry of your life's yeah. work is is laid on, yeah. like, that I can embrace. So those those. I think those are amazing lessons. Yeah, those are yeah. certainly, I, I would imagine, I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, I can go home and I can do work on right. approaching my relationships that way more intentionally, but also mm. like like holding myself to the standard of saying, if I'm in a place where I'm unhappy, if I'm mm-hmm. in a place that's not fulfilling to me, if I'm in a place where the relationships are toxic, yeah. something better can exist and I should expect and hope for it and try to create yeah. it myself if I can't find it. Those are amazing It's a design problem. Yeah. That's all it is. <laughs> but uh, inspirational to anybody who's listening, even if they're not two Aww. years old. Yeah. <laughs> Because I know my, my two-year-old's certainly not listening. He's not to listening uh, too much at all right now. No. I just hope at some point he does. Down the road. We'll archive it. Um, it's on the internet. The internet's forever. Right. It'll be there. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much. Oh, it's an honor. This is just a thank you. It just is, yeah. um, it's humbling to get to, just for someone to ask about our story and to care and to want to hear about it. It just means a lot to us. It's our, it's our life, you know, and it just means a lot that you would want to ask to spend the time to talk with us about it. Well, I I want to say everything that you've said about the quality of the people that work for you, I can attest because I've met and talked they to are, all of them, yeah. but they say the th- same things yeah. about both of you, you know, over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So, 
Uh, you guys are doing great things. It's an honor and a pleasure to know you and to talk Thank to you. Thank you. Thanks, Brandon. I got you, Brandon. Thank you. This episode of The Distiller was recorded live at Branch Restaurant at 1535 Madison Road in East Walnut Hills, Cincinnati. Thanks to John Ford and the staff of Branch for hosting us. You can see photos of their beautiful new space, including Night Drop, the downstairs craft cocktail bar, and links to Branch's website and social media pages on our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. Stop by Branch, say hi to John and the crew, and be sure to tell them thanks for hosting The Distiller. And thanks so much to Ramsey and Kate for sharing their amazing work and their story with us. If you want to find out more about the work that Design Impact is doing in Cincinnati and around the United States, we have links to their website and social media pages at thedistillerpodcast.com. Kate mentioned some of the resources they've produced, including their 2018 annual report, which are amazing, inspiring examples of the great work Kate, Ramsey, and the entire Design Impact team are doing. You can learn more, get in touch with them, support their work, and maybe even hire Design Impact to help make your work, your process, or your company more equitable and more inclusive. Find all of that on thedistillerpodcast.com, and we'd be happy to put you in touch with them. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Our logo is designed by Scott Ryan, and our videos are by Mike Helm of Minute Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can listen and download every episode of The Distiller at thedistillerpodcast.com with links, photos of the guests, and a map of all the show locations. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. Follow and share our posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you'd like to help us cover some of the expenses of creating The Distiller, you can support The Distiller on Patreon. Just go to thedistillerpodcast.com and click on the Become a Patron button for more information. And finally, we would love it if you'd rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen and help us get the word out about the show. You can always email us at mail at thedistillerpodcast.com to tell us who you think should be on The Distiller, to talk about their search for meaningful work, or where you think we should record the next show. Whether it's by email, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, please drop us a line. We always love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson. Thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.